I want to begin this morning by making a statement that might be hard for some people to hear. I know that's kind of a loaded way of starting this morning, but it's true. Because people naturally gravitate towards those that they have most in common, segregation is actually just a simple, natural human condition. I know that's difficult to wrap your brain around simply because segregation is not a popular or accepted concept, but it does exist for better or worse. Since people are creatures of comfort, many would simply prefer the company of people in whom they, sh- they share the most and whom they relate, as opposed to seeking the interactions of those they don't naturally share the same basic commonalities. We talk about segregation often in the, in the scope of race, but beyond that, human beings, people, you and I, we segregate for all kinds of reasons. Some good, some bad, some silly, some stupid. If you voted for Romney in the last election, how many genuine friends do you have that sported the I support President Obama stickers in their car windows? Like we divide on political persuasions. We segregate, don't we? We hang out with our Republican friends or our Democrat friends or our independent friends. We don't often mix and mingle, you know what I mean? If you're into the O'Reilly factor, or you're a diehard Rush listener, how many friends do you have who watch Real Time with Bill Maher or even believe in global warming? If you're an urban hipster, how many friends do you have that are soccer moms? If you're a vegan, how many friends do you have that are avid hunters? If you're really into Florida Georgia line, do you even know someone who's aware who Little Wayne even is? Don't worry about it. I thought Georgia Florida line was like a marching band. I was really pumped up on Google Play, like, cool, a marching band. It's like top five. That's rad. And then it was bad country music. I know that was loaded. If you're over 50, if you're over 50, how many genuine friendships do you have with people in their 20s? If you're Ivy educated, how many relationships do you have with blue collar workers? If you prefer Coca-Cola, do you ever hang out or break bread with someone who likes Pepsi? If you don't, that's okay. More power to you. If you're a sports fanatic, do you even know someone that's in a book club other than your wife? Like another guy? Probably not. If you're a member of a country club, what does the word junior mean to you? Do you think of junior partner or the number 88? If you subscribe to Bob Jones University newsletter, do you ever socialize with friends who drink, dance, or for that matter, do anything fun? Probably not. In an op-ed for The Guardian titled, Our 21st Century Segregation, We're Still Divided by Race, Reniqua Allen wrote this. She says, it's time for us to face the reality that for many Americans, even if we live and work around diversity, our best friends and spiritual leaders, the people we invite into our lives and homes, often look like we do, reinforcing a de facto segregation. This social and cultural segregation isn't restricted even to uneducated people living out in the country. It is 
equally prominent in environments where smart, educated people who are supposed to know better, people who have studied race, spent months abroad, who may even have black friends or lovers, but still too often manage to have a community that doesn't reflect diversity in their broader city or nation. I ran across something that was just really disturbing to me. New York City. New York City is known as being the cultural melting pot of the world. But you are aware, are you aware, that every Saturday, the bars in that great city actively foster segregation among the communities that live in that particular city? Do you realize that there is a bar in New York City that doesn't market itself for the college football fan, but markets themselves for one particular section of college football fans while excluding all others? Even ESPN's complicit, Texas. If you're a Texas fan, there's one bar you can go to. It's called Stout West on 33rd Street. Nobody else is welcome but Texas fans. Total segregation, it's unfair. Beyond that, Northwestern fans, they, they have Blondies on 79th. Ohio State, Manny's on the 2nd. Syracuse fans, I don't even know if they're Syracuse fans, but if there are, they can go to East Inn on 1st Avenue. Michigan, it's Bounce, 2nd Avenue. Penn State, the Mean Fiddler. Nebraska, Irish Rogue, Oklahoma, Overlook on 44th. Notre Dame, McFadden's Figures. LSU, Legends. Arkansas is the Mad Hatter. You'd think those two were reversed. I don't know why. Rutgers, Wicked Willies, Ole Miss, the Wharf Bar and Grill on 3rd Avenue. I think it's, a, it's an atrocity. Segregation like that of people who just love football. You know, I have a dream where one day college football fans will put aside our many differences of color and come together on a common love for football and hatred of the NCAA. Amen, amen. <laughs> My point, we segregate. Now, there are forms of segregation that are atrocious and that are despicable and that weigh on our hearts things that we reject. But naturally, this is my point, naturally, humanity, people, segregate. If you're a dog fan, you like to spend Saturdays with dog fans. It's what made kind of our last band of brothers so unique. We had Georgia fans and Tennessee fans and an Oklahoma fan, an LSU fan. We had a, a in the South, in Georgia, near Athens, we had a football gathering and we're watching Georgia and Tennessee and someone was allowed in and even socialized wearing an LSU shirt. It's amazing, it was real genuine community. Now understand, because the existence of genuine community, in spite of this basic human tendency to segregate, is so hard to overcome or to achieve, the work that Jesus began 2,000 years ago in Acts chapter 10, indeed presents such a radical contrast to the rest of the world that it demands our attention. Not only, friend, does the gospel of Jesus transcend the petty things that divide us, but it has proven to have a unique ability to bring together people of all different walks of life. And yet, as we'll see this morning, this unnatural result can only occur when people 
come to a full understanding of God's grace and are finally willing to surrender to the moving of his spirit. Now to recap last Sunday, there are three things essential to our understanding of where we're at because we're in verse nine. Three essential things to our understanding of the story. First, God's plan, you should note, has always been to reach the world with the gospel, both Jew and Gentile. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But secondly, the mechanism by which God would accomplish this would be through the Jews. Now the nation had slacked on their responsibility, but God was now gonna call Jewish men filled with the spirit of God, who still, by the way, held long-standing prejudices towards the rest of the world to do something quite radical. Now, knowing what it would take for Peter to be obedient to cross such a racial divide, a racial barrier, Jesus has spent the last several years preparing him for this moment. I encourage you to listen to last Sunday's Bible study to gain the full context. But we're about to see with verse nine that there is still yet one more lesson that Peter needs to learn before he can take his final exam. Well, we're told the next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, that Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, Luke tells us that Peter fell into a trance. Now, as the men from Cornelius, remember, an angel appeared to him. He's in this He's praying, he's spending time with the Lord. He's a good man, he's a noble man, he's a generous man, he's a loving man, but he's still a lost man. He's rejected uh, Roman gods. He's found uh, the God of Israel to to be real, but Judaism left him on the outside looking in. There's a cry, a longing of his heart. There's gotta be something more, and this is what he's praying. And an angel appears and says, this is what you need to do. You send some men to Joppa and seek out an individual named Peter. He's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner. And you bring him and he will tell you what you must do. And so these men are making, two servants and a Roman soldier are making the 30 mile journey from Caesarea south to Joppa along the coast of the Mediterranean. And as this is taking place, verse nine transition or shifts are seen back to Peter according to the text, around the sixth hour. This would be noon. Peter decides to spend some time with the Lord, to spend some time in prayer. He had a spot that he liked to go up to. You can imagine going up to the rooftop there right on the coast, beautiful view, nice ocean breeze. But you know what? His timing was horrible because he goes at noon. He goes to pray at noon. It's lunchtime, as we can all relate. If your tummy's growling, Trying to focus in on praying can be impossible. Even for Peter, the first pope, we're told that as he begins praying, what happens? He becomes very hungry and wanted to eat. Now, I love this. Because instead of just powering through these hunger pains, what does Peter do? He just stops praying. He's like, I'm hungry. I need a sandwich. And he calls down, can someone make me a sandwich? Now, what I love about it is he just didn't power through his prayer. He didn't like create some like pseudo, like if I'm denying myself certain things, my prayer will be greater heard by the Lord. Like I'm supposed to pray and it's supposed to be a miserable experience at the same time. Somehow those two things are interconnected. No, I love it. He's praying, man, I'm hungry. 
And so he just stops praying. He's like, pause, time out, Lord. Can someone get me some food? And he's waiting. Now, you know, taking this strategy by Peter, it's not as though it really robbed him of anything, did it? Like God still was willing to speak to him, right? You know, it's a pet peeve, but like right before we eat lunch or dinner, that's not the time for you to have a personal devotion with the Lord. Like just say, Lord, thank the Lord for the food. Most of the stuff we eat, you can't ask him to bless it. I mean, he can change water into wine, but taking that McDonald's hamburger and making it good for you, I mean, that's a miracle, right? So just kind of like throw up like, Lord, thank you so much for the provisions for this, but I'm hungry, so I'm gonna eat now. And guess what? God's cool with it. He rolls. He'll still speak to you because he does this with Peter. We're told as he's waiting, he falls into a trance. This word trance is the Greek word ecstasis, from which we get the English word ecstasy. The word literally means a throwing of the mind out of its normal state. So this is quite a vision. This is quite a moment. Because we're told in verse 11 that as he's in this trance, or he was just really hungry, he sees heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at four corners descends to him. It's let down to the earth. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. And a voice came to him, a voice. And this voice said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. Now we're gonna work our way just through the particulars of the vision by pointing out there's three components. First, what Peter saw. There was an object. It wasn't a blanket. It was like a blanket. It was a vessel, like a great sheet bound at four corners. And we're told that what he sees within this object or this vessel are all kinds of animals. It descends from heaven. His stomach is growling, he's really hungry, and he has visions of food. And then we see what he heard. We read that a voice came to him. So he's watching this this thing come down and a voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now what made this command so bizarre is that in this vessel were all kinds of animals, some clean, some unclean, according to the Mosaic law. There were all kinds of dietary restrictions laid out in Leviticus 11, things that were permissible to eat, things that were not permissible to eat. You've probably heard the word kosher. That's kind of how we define things, things that were kosher, things that were not kosher, but this voice tells him to eat all of it. No particulars. There's all kinds of food. Dive in, Peter. But look how he responds. Not so, Lord. Now that's an oxymoron. I mean, I mean, these three words, not so, Lord, that's completely contradictory. Like you can say no, and you can say Lord, but you can't say no, Lord, together. It doesn't work. You can say yes, Lord, but you can't say no, Lord, because if God is your Lord, then you won't say no, you say yes, you obey. That's the nature of there being a Lord and you being the servant. So his answer is totally contradictory, and yet it reveals to us an inner struggle, right? He sees this this object filled with these animals. There's a command, 
to kill and eat, but he's, he's wrestling with a dichotomy. Like, I'm being told to do something, but why am I being told to do this when, well, my entire life I've been told not to, religiously. Peter even goes so far as to justify his inaction by boasting that he had never eaten anything common or unclean. Now, I want to make a side observation that I find really encouraging about these three words, not so, and how they relate to Peter and relate to me. You see, though Peter has been saved by the blood of Christ, and Peter's been filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter is still Peter. Like, the fundamental struggle of Peter's personality, it didn't change. Yeah, if you recall in the gospel records, Peter had a tendency to shout off, to spit off, not so Lord, all the time. Like all the time, especially if Peter's being faced with a dynamic he didn't fully understand. If you remember, Jesus is teaching about his coming death. And Peter's like, whoa, 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 Jesus, come here. We need to have a little powwow. This is not a good idea. I think you should keep the death stuff on, a, on the down low. In essence, not, no, not so, Lord. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. Like totally rebukes him. Jesus, there celebrating Passover, the Seder dinner. He gets up and he begins to wash everyone's feet, right? And he gets to Peter. Peter jumps up, like, not so, Lord. Ain't happening. You ain't touching my feet. And Jesus is like, okay, then if I can't wash your feet, then you have nothing to do with me. And Peter about faces and like, all right, you cannot just wash my feet. You can wash everything. And Jesus is like, no, I just only want to wash your feet, really. Again, same night, Jesus is telling them how they're going to betray, deny him. His inner circle, when Peter pipes up, right? No, 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 no. I understand how you feel this way about James and John. I would be suspect of them as well. But Jesus, you can count on old Pete. I got your back. And Jesus is like, you're an idiot. I mean, that's my paraphrasing. But he's like, Peter, you're going to deny me three times tonight before the rooster crows. Like, so we see Peter, and Peter's always like, no. Like God says, this is what's going on. And Peter's like, I don't think so. And then he gets saved, and he's filled with the Spirit. And Peter still has the same struggle. Like, I find that so encouraging. In Galatians 5, verses 16 and 18, we're told to walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. These things are contrary to one another. So that sometimes you do not do the things that you wish. But if you were led by the Spirit, you were not under the law. And what I love about this verse is that if there is no struggle for a believer, a Spirit-filled believer, to remain walking in the Spirit, then why the exhortation? Like, it's the reality that I'm still going to struggle. Like, those things that made me an idiot before Christ still make me an idiot after Christ. My BC and, and AD look very similar, but I have the Spirit of God. And so Peter's in this moment, and he says, Not so, Lord. But a voice spoke to him again, second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. 
This was done three times. The object was taken up into heaven again. Now, I just want to cut right to the point. What, what's the vision? Like, what is the point of this vision? What's this vision aimed at communicating? Now, while many teach that the vision was designed to illustrate to Peter that the church would be made up of both Jews and Gentiles, clean and unclean, that this vessel, this object was the church in many ways. While that's a truth, I don't believe this vision has anything to do with either the Gentiles or the church, but instead has everything to do with Peter himself. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced the entire vision was designed to address a far bigger issue that existed within the framework of Peter's heart and the first century church and how they viewed salvation. You know, it's been said you can never overcome a prejudice without first addressing the basis for that prejudice. And I think this is what God is intending to do through this vision. Now, the key to our understanding of this particular passage rests in one fundamental, but often never asked question. And that is, why did Peter refuse to obey God's command to eat things that are against the dietary restrictions laid out in Leviticus 11? God told him to eat. Why does he resist? Now, sadly, the answer to this question, it does reveal a pervasive misunderstanding that existed in a predominantly Jewish church when it came to the full nature of salvation. A misunderstanding that fostered these racial, prejudicial attitudes towards the Gentiles, and one that if was not corrected, would make diversification within the church simply impossible. Now understand, everyone would agree at this point in history, church history, everyone would agree that salvation only came through Jesus' atoning work on the cross. And while that was true, it's also evident that many still saw the church is made up of Jews. Salvation through Jesus' atoning work, but many still saw God's favor as being based in a person's obedience to the Mosaic law. In essence, salvation was seen as a combination of faith in Jesus plus obedience to the law, which explains why at this point, in order to become a Christian, you had to also become a practicing Jew. Now the text is clear that while Peter undoubtedly understood his salvation was based in his faith in Jesus's work on the cross, Peter still held to a belief, doesn't he? That his favor with God was intertwined with his obedience to the law. He sees this, this, this vessel of animals and he, he begins to boast, right? I can't do that, why? I've never eaten anything common or unclean. It was the basis of some of his righteousness. Now with this in mind, I believe God's point in commanding Peter to kill and eat was not to change his diet, but instead to challenge his perspective. Consider God's reply to Peter's justification. He says, I've never eaten anything common or unclean, but God says, the voice spoke a second time saying, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now in context, what had God cleansed? Had God cleansed the animals? Were the animals there? Is that 
the object that God had cleansed, things that the law had said were unclean. I don't think so. Like it seems to me that what God had cleansed was not the animals on the sheet, but was in actuality Peter. Think about how these words would have reverberated in his heart. Peter, your obedience to the law didn't make you clean. Who made you clean? What I have cleansed, you should not call common. I have made you clean. It's a work that I did. See, at this point, old Pete, what you eat has no effect on the reality of you being clean or unclean. The law never made you clean. It always made you unclean. You know, it's as though the entire vision is God's way of telling Peter that his obedience to the law, being kosher, had and still has no fundamental bearing when it came to his favor with God. Justification, sanctification were both a result of Jesus's work on the cross. See, beyond being Jewish or obeying Jewish law or holding to Jewish customs, none of these things had any impact on God's favor. Now, Isaiah 64 verse six says that we are all like an unclean thing and all of our righteousness as filthy rags. See, God's favor in this moment, God's favor had been given to Peter. It had not been earned by his obedience. It was a work based in God's grace and his grace alone. Paul would say in Galatians 2 verses 21 that I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, which it doesn't, then Christ would have died in vain. Now, why is this an important lesson for Peter to learn in context to what's about to take place, what's about to follow? Here's the answer. If justification being being seen by God justified, never sinned, and sanctification, which is the work of me being sanctified or made more into the image of Jesus, if both of these, justification and sanctification, are a work of God, independent of an individual's adherence to the law, well, the doors of salvation now swing wide open for all humanity. You see, being obedient, An obedient Jew was no longer a prerequisite to receive God's favor and be a part of his chosen people. Now, in order to drive home this point, which was an important point, it's interesting that based on this vision, there are decades of debate about what should happen with these Gentile Christians. And Peter will constantly go back, same with Paul, to this moment. And their point will be twofold. What we eat doesn't matter at all. Being being an obedient Jew doesn't matter at all. And they will always come back to the reality that it's all about God's grace. The Jews are saved by God's grace. The Gentiles are saved by God's grace. What we do doesn't matter anymore. It's who we are in Christ that's lasting. And this was so important. I don't think it's an accident that we're told this was done, this vision, this exchange happened three times. You know, if you study God's handling of Peter, you will observe that patterns of three were common. 
people don't often bring this up. Do you know Jesus actually had to call Peter to follow him three times? Yeah, three, on three separate occasions. Like Peter was hesitant. And God's, in John's gospel, Peter is first called after being introduced to Jesus by his brother Andrew. And Mark and Matthew's accounts, Jesus is a, again calls Peter as he's mending his nets on the shore. And then Luke's account, while in Peter's boat, Jesus calls him for a third and final time. It took three times. Peter, will you follow me? He's a stubborn guy. Then following Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, a haughty Peter, full of himself, and his ability to follow Jesus no matter where that went, it was a rooster that would, he would deny three times before the rooster crowed, another instance of three. And then Peter, he goes and he weeps. Jesus is resurrected. And he, have, he has to have an exchange with Jesus on the shore of Galilee. And, and what happens? Jesus restores Peter, but has to ask him one question three times. Peter, do you love me? You know, I believe in presenting this vision three times that Peter couldn't help but recall the incredible grace that God had already demonstrated towards him and calling him and him failing Jesus, but Jesus graciously restoring him. It's as though three times Peter can't help but think, do you really want the basis of your favor with God to be on your performance, Peter? or rather God's grace. See, understand, when you come to the realization that your righteous standing with God is based only in his amazing grace, showing moral prejudice towards another becomes a baseless proposition. Please understand, the only segregation that exists on Mount Calvary is that there is one man on a cross and the rest of us on our knees. That's the only segregation. You are not better than anybody else in this room. Well, but I do this, and I do that, and they don't do this, and they don't. It doesn't matter. Well, God has cleansed. Who are you to call common? We've been saved by the blood of Christ, liberated by the blood of Christ, set free by the blood of Christ. We are all, the basis of our favor with God is Jesus and him alone. Man, that should be unifying, shouldn't it? But we're told that as Peter, he's wondering within himself. I think he's wondering two things. A, what this vision meant and where the heck his sandwich is. Behold, there are men, these men, who had been sent from Cornelius. They arrive. They make an inquiry at Simon's house. They stood at the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down, go with them, doubt nothing, for I have sent them. Like, I like the fact that God is working on both ends when it comes to setting up this all-important meeting. While Cornelius has received a word from the Lord, has sent men to retrieve Peter, God is also working on Peter's end, right? Independent, confirming that he should indeed go with these men that had been sent. And God's timing seems perfect, right? As Peter's grappling with the lesson, these men arrive. Now, I just want to make a side point. 
When it comes to our life in Christ, determining God's will, God uses others to confirm his instructions, not dictate them. We might be having a conversation and the Lord gives me a word. I say, hey, have you ever thought about, man, you've got such a heart for missions. Have you ever thought about going into full-time missions? Man, you seem to have such a heart for Haiti. And then in that moment, you're like, that's exactly what the Lord's been speaking to my heart. Like that confirms, that resonates. If that word from the Lord doesn't resonate, then all you have to say is, thanks for that, Pastor Zach. I'm not going to Haiti. Like God has not spoken to me. Like, like please understand the way that God works is that God, when he speaks through someone else, he will use that person to confirm what he's already saying to you. He will not use someone to dictate instructions. It's not as though I stand up here and say, you should be going and doing this and you that. No, the Lord has to be working on your own heart. Ladies, by the way, some guy ever comes up to you and is like, God spoke to me. And you're supposed to be my wife. If God has not said that to you, then you come find me and we'll handle it, okay? Seriously, it works on both ends. God's speaking to Cornelius. God's also speaking to Peter. These men show up. Peter's ready. He's ready to roll. So Peter goes down, verse 21. He meets these men sent to him from Cornelius. He says, yes, I am he who you seek. For what reason have you come? And they say, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God, has a good reputation among the nation of the Jews. They're kind of rolling out his resume. He was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house to hear words from you. So Peter invited them in, lodged with them. On the next day, Peter went with them, and some of the brother from Joppa accompanied. Now imagine Peter's reaction, right? Don't get too far ahead of yourself. He's up there, hunger pains, vision, sub sandwich. He's chewing on what all this means. An angel, the Holy Spirit, speaks to him. There's going to be three guys. They're going to show up. They're going to ask you to do something radical. Roll with it, Peter. I'm totally in it. Peter's not told who the men are, right? Or where he's going to go. None of that. Imagine his reaction. So he knows God's setting all this up, that this is all God, that God has laid the framework. There's no doubt God is behind these three guys showing up. He opens the door, and there are two Gentile slaves and a Roman soldier. Boom, his brain blows up. And to make matters worse, not only had God commanded that he go with them, but the destination of which God didn't inform him, but now he knows, is the house of a Roman centurion. <laughs> Do you know, I don't know if you've experienced this, I have, but anytime God is teaching you a lesson, you can expect a situation to almost immediately arise where you have to put that lesson into practice. You know, God speaks to you and is like, you need to be more patient. And then you go home and your kids are demon possessed all of a sudden. And you're like, what? Well, I told you you need to be patient and now I'm gonna put you to the test. Like anytime God's speaking to us, instructing us, working in us, that then like, a lesson comes, like 
an application, a chance to work these things through, to put them into practice. Don't overlook the significance of this detail that Peter invited them in and lodged with them. In the original language, this phrase, lodge them, it literally meant that Peter entertained them as honored guests. This would not have been possible before the vision. I mean, this pajama party was inconceivable if not for the vision that Peter had just received. The magnitude of God's grace. It transcended anything that might have prohibited their fellowship. Peter's in a moment thinking, wow, this is a whole new world. And then these men show up and he's like, I can't, come on in. And he entertains them. He fellowships with them. Because Peter senses the gravity of the moment and he understands the radical implications of what's taking place and about to take place, he does something very wise. Luke tells us Peter not only went with them, but that he had some brethren from Joppa accompany him. We will discover in Acts 11 that Peter actually takes six Jewish believers to be witness, witnesses of whatever would come next. Now, on a side note, before we conclude our study, you know, I don't think it's an accident that this whole dynamic, this whole situation took place in the city of Joppa. There's little details, little threads that just tie things together through Scripture in such a particular way. It's pretty awesome. Because Joppa, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, was also home of another man of God, another Jewish prophet, another man called by God some eight centuries before Peter to do the same thing, to take the gospel to the Gentiles, this time not to Romans, and that day it was to the Assyrians. This man's name was Jonah. That Jonah was in Joppa. And God said, go to Nineveh and preach because there's a revival. It's ripe for the harvest. And because of his hatred, because of his bigotry, because of his prejudice, Jonah said, not me. It ain't happening. And he boards a boat and he sails the opposite direction. Now, if you know the story, he gets thrown overboard fish swallows him, regurgitates, vomits him up on shore. He walks into Nineveh like, I can't run from this, but I'm not going to be nice about it. And he says, Nineveh in 40 days, you're all going to die. Like that was the message. It was eight words. And they're all like, oh snap, we're all going to die if we don't repent. And there's like the largest revival in maybe human history happened. In a moment, the whole town, the whole city, the empire, the capital of the world. You know, as, as Peter's sitting up there, <laughs> thinking, well, what do I do that night? Do I go or do I not? I can't help, but he probably thought for a moment, okay, this is going down. And I'm gonna probably be the guy. My question is, do I want to be swallowed and regurgitated by a big fish in the process? 
And he wisely makes the decision, I'm gonna obey the Lord. I'm gonna move beyond my comfort zone. I'm gonna be faithful to God's calling. You know, in conclusion, I believe our greatest witness to the world occurs when diverse people willingly come together to experience genuine community with one another. It's what I love about our church. I mean, I mean, just take a moment. This will get awkward, but it's okay. Just look around this room. Like, we have some goofy people here. Like, goofiest of which is me, right? Like, like really, if you look around this room, I think, I think it's safe to say that there's no way, no chance in this world, apart from Jesus and God's grace, that I'd have anything to do with you people. And you with me. You look around at the diversity. Like what's happening here happens in no other context. No other application do people of such diversity come together in such a radical way. Like it's so abnormal, friend, that what's happening here this morning can only be chalked up as being supernatural. You know, it's with this in mind that I find it so sad when people end up choosing a church community based solely upon what's comfortable. Racial comfort, age similarities, life status, stylistic preferences. You know, when we segregate as a church, not only do we unintentionally minimize the unifying power of God's grace and a moving of God's spirit and what that says to the world, but in doing the easier thing, and it is easier, and doing the easier thing, when it's all said and done, you rob yourself of the benefits, the benefits diversity affords. Like, please consider, what kind of church do you really wanna be a part of? And I had fun coming up with three different names here to describe kind of an abstract thought, but like, do you wanna be part of the Hellbop church? Do you remember the Hellbop comet cult? Like the Hellbop church is a church where the members are more interested in dying together than leaving behind some type of lasting, sustainable ministry. You know, it's made up of nothing but gray hairs who just don't understand those young kids and don't want to do anything to reach them and legitimately are planning, hey, how exciting this is where we'll all die together. And nothing will, like they'll sell our church to a music venue. Like the Hellbop. You want to be part of the Hellbop church and just die with everyone? Or be part of something like that leaves a legacy? Do you want to be part of the frat church? In this church, everyone's young, wild, and stupid because there's no adults around. There might be lots of energy, but without any experience, no one's grounded. Like, do you want to be part of just a church that, that, that has no adults or older folks, people who have, who have raised kids, who are loving on grandkids, who've been there, done that, that young men can go to and say, I got no idea what I'm doing. And you can say, I had no idea what I'm doing. And it's only now, after the fact, that I can speak some wisdom. Like, we see one of the biggest divides in Christianity. It happens, yes, it does on race, which we'll get to in a second, but it happens on age. 
You have old churches and young churches. And both, both are not what Jesus wants. You know, older people, there's something about hanging out with younger people that keep you alive. And I don't say that to be funny, but it's true. Like that it keeps you energetic. It keeps you engaging into new things, exploring new horizons. And for young people, do you realize you need older folks in your life? Because you're out of control. And you think you know it all, but you don't. And you need older women, older men in your life that you can go to for genuine counsel. Like you can come to me and talk to me about how to raise a child. I'm two and a half years into it. I can tell you what the Bible has to say about it. But go talk to Larry Parkin, who's raised a couple of them. Or Gary Lawler. Or Bill, who's now a grandfather. Or Eddie. You guys have no idea. You think Eddie's young. Eddie's an old guy (laughs) who loves to rock with a bunch of young guys. Keeps him young. Eddie and I exchange more emails about new guitar pedals than I would with any other 20-year-old. It's kind of crazy. Do you want to be part of the gingerbread man church? In this church, everyone feels very comfortable because they all look and dress the same. But tragically, since everyone in this church is cut from the same mold, it doesn't take very long for things to grow bland and predictable. I mean, can you really expect anything different since everyone's made out of, a, out of gingerbread? That's just tasteless. There's something fun and fresh about diversity. I want Calvary 316 to be the heavenly church. Do you wanna be part of a heavenly church? And what I mean by this is a church that provides a little taste of heaven. Because guess what? In heaven, we're told that all of the nations of the world are around the throne of God singing holy, 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 God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The Hellbop church where you can just die with everyone you wanna die with, or the frat church where you can just have a lot of fun, but be morons. Gingerbread church where you can just gravitate to everybody that looks like you and just be gross. Or be a church in the model of heaven Now, here's the thing. In order to do this, genuine community in the face of our natural diversities, it's difficult, isn't it? Like, this is hard to achieve. It's why it doesn't happen often. It's why it doesn't happen in any other context in society, and it's difficult even in the church. But Acts 10, friend, it provides us the key the key to doing something that's difficult, doing something that's heavenly. You see, if we possess a commonality that's so incredible that it trumps everything else that makes us diverse, we can come together. Let's see, that's what the grace of God is. It doesn't matter how old we're young, or what, how old, how young, what our taste is, the color of our skin. If you grab grace and how amazing it is, We can overcome anything that would naturally divide the common bond of God's amazing grace presents the only basis 
by which a diverse congregation exists or seeks to love one another, seeks to abide in community with each other, and seeks to learn and to cherish and to appreciate, to respect the things that make us all so different. And so, Father, Lord, that, that's, our, that's our desire. 